I'm going to tell you six stories. And I'd like you to listen to the six stories. But the six stories go into three groups. Three groups. And after I finish telling you the stories, I would like you to tell me or to think or to feel which of the stories are the most meaningful to you. And then, which of the stories do you think are really most meaningful? In other words, I think that when I'm finished, there's going to be differences of opinion. I don't think it'll be a monolith. You won't all think and feel the same thing. I want to tell you these stories, and then afterwards, I guess by show of hands, depending on what's going on, I'd like to ask you, as I wrote in my paper, three questions. Which of the stories do you think are the most important to the Eibishter? Which of these stories do you think is most important to the Rebbe? And which of these stories do you think is the most important for you? So here goes, I'm telling you six stories. The first is a story about a chassid whose name was Reuven Dunin. Reuven Dunin passed away a decade ago, 11 years ago to be exact. And he wrote his own biography. Before he passed away, he himself recorded his meeting the Rebbe. And it's very personal, and it isn't necessarily uh, self-aggrandizing. It doesn't make him look good. Some would say it makes him look the opposite of good. But he wrote this down because he felt that the Kirov the Rebbe gave him, and the Rebbe gave him extraordinary Kirov, was not for him. It was for everybody. So he had the courage, and believe me, he had a lot of courage, before he died to record his own autobiography, his relationship with the Rebbe. And this is the story. Reuven Dunin came from a Frum home. He, his father was a very fine Jew who was a Talmud of what they call the Tzaddik in our time, the Tzaddik of Yerushalayim. Rabbi Levin, who was a Litvak, and not a Chassid, but an unbelievably fine person with incredible, incredible midas. And his father was a Talmud of his. In 1948, when Israel became a state, and there was all kinds of winds of change, Reuven Dunin left everything, everything. Shabbos, kosher, Yom Kippur, nothing. Instead, he dedicated his life, what was then considered the best Jew in the world, to build Israel, to make the desert bloom. And he learned how to use uh, heavy equipment, tractors and trucks, and he was busy building at Israel. They built homes, they built whole communities, he describes himself, the kind of physical strength he had. He used to work two shifts. That means 16 hours a day, and he still had time to party in the remaining few hours that he was supposed to sleep and eat. He was completely estranged from Yiddishkeit. Anyway, years passed, and the, the fun turned sour, bitter. It's only good for a while. And he had a brother who had a shaykhaz with Hasidis, with Chabad, and he gave him a Labavitcher circular. He gave him like a, the equivalent of a Lachayim. A Labavitcher publication, which Chassidus was in it. He read the Chassidus, and he liked it. And he comes to his brother, and he says to his brother, you have any more? You have any more of these pages? So his brother would feed him a little bit at a time. His brother was very careful to give him only just to, to whet his appetite. And he started reading Chassidus. And of course, you know what Chassidus is. Chassidus is a Yiddish guide. It's not about a Gehenim and a Ganeiden. 
Chassidus is a Yiddish kind about an Ebishter and about an Eshome. And the Ebishter, the Ganeidin that the Ganeidin wasn't afraid of. But the Ebishter of the Ebishter and the Neshama touched him. And he became, became about children. And he said to his father, he wants to go back to Yeshiva. By this point, he was already in his 20s. He was not a little boy. His father, of course, was thrilled that he had become Frum again. And he took him to various Yeshivas. And he was very, very not happy. Really, this is a family that's not Hasidish. They're Litvisha, Elamisha. Eventually, he brought him to the Lud, with the Shiva Yamatan Lud, I believe. And the Mashpia was of Shemachayim. And Reuven Dunin walked into the Yeshiva with long hair and with uh, jeans or overalls. And he came into the Bismedish with his father. As soon as they walked across the threshold of the Bismedish, he felt the energy. And he says to his father, I want to be here. Anyway, his father went over to the Mashpir of Shemachayim and he talked to him. Shemachayim took one look at this boy and he said to himself, not for us. And he told his father, he didn't tell him why, he said that he doesn't want to make him uncomfortable. So Reuven says to his father, he doesn't like my hair, he doesn't like my jeans, tomorrow I come with a hat and a suit and a haircut, I'll behave. So he went back to the Shemachayim and took him into the yeshiva. Reuven Dunin learned Teda day and night, day and night, for seven months. And he drove himself to the edges of his health, Mamish. At the end of that period, he came to his mashpia, Rav Shleim and he said to his mashpia, I want to go to the Rebbe. Now, we know today that Rav Shleim had special instructions from the Rebbe not to allow Bokhrim to come to New York until, quote, they were ready. Reuven Dunin was a big boy. A big boy, I mean 25 probably. He had spent seven months literally learning Tate and Davening with the Mesiris Nefesh. So his mashpia said, you can go to the Rebbe. And he told him how to prepare himself to go to the Rebbe. And one of the things that he said to him was that when you walk into the Rebbe's room, the very first words that come out of the Rebbe's mouth are a lesson for your whole life. And anyway, he travels to New York, and he comes to 770. You remember, in 1958, the Rebbe looked younger than most of your fathers. The Rebbe was already then 56 years old, but he didn't look 56. He looked much younger. He looked 40. And the Rebbe walked very fast. There was no shtick. The Rebbe didn't clap his hands and stamp his feet and roll his eyes. The Rebbe, he saw the Rebbe come into Mincha. The Rebbe took a look at him. The Rebbe looked him up and down like this, like you read a, a ticker tape in a business office. And the Rebbe read him through and through. And when the Rebbe walked out of Mincha, he said to himself, For this Jew, it is worthwhile to live. He spent three weeks and he made a Yechides to go into the Rebbe. And he wrote a note, he told his story basically, that he comes from a Frum home, a Litvisha home, that he's a Baltshuva, that he's learning seven months in Lut, in Tisral, and he's by the Rebbe now, and he wants a Baruchachvez. The Rebbe takes his chattel and goes, I want to describe this to you, although I've heard conflicting, from different people I heard different things. The Rebbe used to put on his glasses, when he would, in Yechid, put on his glasses, and the Rebbe would take your page. You didn't speak to the Rebbe. You wrote a note. You take your page, pencil. The Rebbe used a pencil, not a pen. And he would roll it over the pencil like this. Like, would read one line at a time. 
And every once in a while he would stop and scribble with his pencil till he read your whole note and he put the note down. He would take off his glasses and he would talk to you. Many people, when they ever talked to them, they never didn't look at them. And they told me many times that they're very happy because if they ever looked at you, you had to look away. You, you could not... You, the Rebbe, to make eye contact with the Rebbe was, was, was like looking into the sun. It was a physical impossibility. The Rebbe reads his, the Rebbe's on his glasses. He reads his settle, takes off his glasses. And remember, he knows from his mashpia that the first words that come out of the Rebbe's mouth are at all, kolachim kolum. And the Rebbe looks up at him and says to him, do you know how to drive a tractor? Well, you have to understand. To Reuven Dunin, the tractor was a getchke. The tractor was a tzalem. The tractor symbolized everything that had made him fry and wild and animalistic. He had run away from the tractor and everything the tractor symbolized and everything the tractor represents. And he became a chassidish abachar who watched what he ate and watched how little he slept and everything was so measured. The first words out of the Rebbe's mouth and he knows them is mashpia. This is for a lifetime. Do you know how to drive a tractor? He was completely stunned, totally stunned. He couldn't speak. And he burst into tears. He started crying. To him, the Rebbe should ask him such a question. So now comes one of the most powerful details I've ever heard of any Yechidus. Imagine you're walking to the Rebbe the first time. The Rebbe asks you a question. You burst into tears. And instead of the Rebbe giving you tissues, or, you know, saying, come lay on my shoulder, the Rebbe looks at him and says to him, Vos what did you come here for? Which, to me, it sounds quite strong. What are you doing here? Can't my room start to cry? What are you doing here? It took him a while to calm down. And when he finished, this is what he writes in his own biography himself. I told the Rebbe everything. I kept no secrets. Now you wouldn't tell the girl sitting next to you everything. You have secrets that no one's allowed to know. To tell the Rebbe everything takes unbelievable courage. But that's the only way to heal. If you want to do tshuva, you have to throw it up. And that's the place to do it. He said, I told the Rebbe everything. And when I finished, I said to the Rebbe, I came here, and the Rebbe should give me a derech and a tikkun tshuva. I should be able to do tshuva. So the Rebbe says to him as follows, Friir, that men zich einordenen in teiru mitzvah besimcho v'tuv leivov, First of all, you're going to arrange yourself, you're going to organize your life to learn Torah with joy, then we'll think about Torah later. Reuven Dunin spent seven months in 770. During those seven months, he became Mamish, an adopted son of the Rebbe's. He had an open door, he knocked on the door and walked in anytime he wanted. He writes that the Rebbe used to give him a signal after Maidiv many nights, which meant come into my room. He would go through the back stairways, which you girls don't understand because now 770 is locked from a thousand sides. But once upon a time, none of 770 was open. And they would push it, leave his door open. He would come and ch- chat. If I bring. He said, the Rebbe made with him a sheer tanya, to learn tanya b'chevrusa. And the tanya ended because he came two minutes late. Once. And he became so close to the Rebbe. And the love the Rebbe showed him was mama like a father to a son and more. Then the Rebbe said to him, go home, go back to Israel and get married. There's a lot of details about his shidduch. The Rebbe tells him, he tells the Rebbe, why don't you go look for a shidduch? Tell me who to marry, I'll marry her. The Rebbe said, that's not the way it works. He had some trouble. But the end of the story was, Reuven Dunin spent his life riding a tractor, just like the Rebbe asked him. He lived in Haifa, which was a very fraye, 
and secular town, communist town, socialist town, and a yid with a beard and a hard hat driving a tractor, melted thousands of hearts. He has, to his credit, literally thousands of Baile Tshuva. And the Baile Tshuva, not because he was so smart, but because of the tractor. They related to him. And it turned out that the first words that ever told him in Yechidus was, in fact, Ahera Kalachaim Kula. 25 years later, this is Tov Shin Man Base, 1981, 25 years later, there was a Fabrengen, Vav Tishrei, and the Rebbe made a Siyam HaMasech Yuma, and he spoke about Tshuva. After the Sikha, Ruben Dunin walked from his place, he was on the bleachers, he went over to the Rebbe, he said, L'chaim, because in this Sikha, the Rebbe answered his question from 25 years earlier, about how he should do Tshuva. The Rebbe waited 25 years to teach him how to do Tshuva. This is my first story. Now my second story. There's a Jew who just passed away. There was a Jew who died about a year ago. And his name was Velvel Green. Velvel Green was a, was a real smart guy. He was a professor, he was a scientist. He was a microbiologist. He did a lot of very cool things in his life. I want to share this with you. Velvel Green published a book in Hebrew. I, I have to translate this book in English. It is so priceless. Velvel Green bought a book in the Hebrew. As soon as he finished writing the book, and he wrote the foreword, as soon the day, literally, the day after he wrote the foreword to this book, he had an heart attack and he died. He went, like he finished his lichas and he went to heaven. He passed away a year ago. And I would very, those who, girls who can read Hebrew, this book, it's called Shalom Abracha. It's an incredible, incredible window into the world of the Rebbe. It's his correspondence with the Rebbe with commentary. It's really such a special book. Velvel Green was living in Minnesota. He was a big professor. He was a very well-respected man. And he was also a conservative Jew. But he was an active conservative Jew. That means he went to shul, he went to temple, he participated in events, he organized events, and wherever he went, he was from the Pnei, he was one of the Jewish leadership, he was a very respected man. And he sees in the newspaper that Merkaz and Yone Chinuch is opening up uh, outposts, is opening up a center in Minnesota, the Rebbe Center, Rabbi Moshe Fels, to Minnesota. Moshe Fels was originally from Minnesota, and the Rebbe sent him back home. And he sees in the newspaper a picture of a rabbi with a hat and a beard, and Bevel Green says to himself, I know what that means. Somebody else was coming to collect. Jews with beards are coming to collect money. And he had policies. If you came from Israel... You got $25. If you came from the United States, you got $18. And if you were a local rabbi, you got $5. In 1963, $5 was not an insult. I'm not sure exactly it was a compliment. Moshe Fela comes to town and Velvel Green is waiting for his phone call. And sure enough, two weeks later, Rabbi Fela calls him and says, Professor Green, I want to meet you. So he says to him, I don't have time. I'll speak to my secretary, she'll write you a check. He says, no, 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 I don't want a check, I want to meet with you. And Velvet Green says, you know what? I'll write you a bigger check. I see that you're pushy guys, and the stomach, you belong to a big organization. I won't give you $5, I'll give you $18, or 36 whatever it was. And Abifel says, no, I need to meet you. And he couldn't understand. So he figured Mustami is going to come meet him, he's going to work him over, he's going to ask him for more money. And, and he, said, he refused him. For Amesha's man, Abifeller insisted. 
And finally, he said, okay, I'll meet you. Came to his office, and he's waiting for him to make a pitch and to ask for money. And the fellow sits down. He says, I want you to understand, I belong to an organization called Lubavitch. And he explains to him what Lubavitch does. Lubavitch is involved in outreach. And he wants to bring Yiddish Kindalach back. And it needs to make a name for itself in this town. People have to know Lubavitch is here. And people have to know that Lubavitch didn't come to town to raise money. Lubavitch came to town to save souls. Now, Velvet Green did not exactly agree with Rabbi Feller about what the Jews of Minnesota need. I think he said to him, we have enough dinners over here, we don't need any more dinners. He says, I didn't come to make dinners, I came to make Jews. And they had a huge argument. Rabbi Feller and Velvet Green are in an argument over whether Rabbi Feller's approach to the future of the Jewish people, which is to worry about Chinuch and Kindalach, is appropriate or not. In the middle of the meeting, Rabbi Feller looks at his watch, he looks out the window without saying a word. I mean, if you ever saw a fellow, you could see him do it in a minute, in a heartbeat. Without saying a word, he jumps out of his seat. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He puts on his gazel and turns to face the wall. And he's dead to the world. Neville Green is sitting there thinking, I didn't give him an appointment for three months. He comes to see me and look what he's doing to the appointment. But then he had another thought. He writes in his book, I didn't know, am I allowed to stand? I'm allowed to sit, I'm allowed to work, I'm allowed to eat, I'm allowed to breathe. A Jew, mit nazai, he stood up with a string around his waist and he's shaking, he never sounds like them. In the conservative movement, no one even knows such a thing called bincha. But then he has a thought. Every month, they had a book club, the Jewish book club. And at the Jewish book club, the last month, they discussed the book called Martyrs which talks about the Yidin who will make the nefesh HaKiddush Hashem and the Gzeres Tachvetat. So they shouldn't become Christians of and Islam. So when they had, they got together all these conservative Jews and they were talking to each other, is there a Jew alive today who is prepared to die not to be Meimer Das? And all of the people at that convention said, no more, such Jews don't exist. And he's looking at Rabbi Feller and he thinks, you know what? Maybe he, he's one of those Jews was as great to starve Malkidish Hashem. Rabbi Fella finishes davening and he turns around and he says to Velvet Green, I apologize. I understand we had an appointment. But the appointment that I just had, I wouldn't give up if I could meet the President of the United States. After this, Velvet Green was speaking another tune. He saw that this is real. This is not an act, this is not a performance. It's not a show, this is real. So in that very same meeting, the second half of the meeting was no longer argumentative. It wasn't an argument with Moshe Feller. Now they talked. And he explained to him what he wants. I want you to know, within two or three years, Velvel Green and his wife opened up the equivalent of a second Chabad house in Minneapolis, a few miles away from a Feller for students. Within two or three years, he said he would have 10 students a Friday night in his home. That's how quickly this man changed. And of course, he got very, very involved with Lubavitch. There's a lot to say. There's many, many stories to tell. But I want to share just one more story by Bevel Green with you. And that is the following. He came across a letter from the Rebbe. The Rebbe has written a few letters, not a lot, but a few letters about questions of what's called the Amunumah, the science and religion. The age of the universe. The scientists say the universe is billions of years old. Taylor says the universe is 5,773 years and so many months exactly. And he came across a letter from the Rebbe on science and religion. 
and he didn't like what the Rebbe wrote. He felt like the Rebbe didn't know what he's talking about. The Rebbe Hakta Chaynik. The Rebbe is pseudo-intellectual. He's skimming the surface of it. He doesn't understand the science, he doesn't understand the physics, the chemistry, the biology. It's very, very superficial, very typical rabbi. So he came to Rabbi Feller. He says to Rabbi Feller, I read this letter from the Rebbe, and it bothers me. The Rebbe does not have to know everything. But the Rebbe has to know what he knows and what he doesn't know. If there's a topic that he's not expert about, he should do everybody a favor and not speak. But the Rebbe should speak on science, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Rabbi Feller, the Rahat Chassid, so he tells him the Rebbe does know science, and if you have questions on this letter, write the Rebbe yourself and ask him. So Rabbi Green, Velvet Green, sat down, he wrote the Rebbe a letter, outlining his questions on the letter the Rebbe had written to some professor. And the Rebbe ignored his letter. So how did he understand the Rebbe's ignoring his letter? How did he understand the Rebbe's ignoring his letter? He understood that the Rebbe Taki didn't have any answers. And the Rebbe realized that he was not where he belonged. So he had the menschlichkeit not to speak and embarrass himself further. Okay, it's okay. The Rebbe doesn't have to know everything. A long time later, I don't know how much longer, but a long time later, he was in New York, and it was in Yechidus, and the Rebbe opens a drawer, pulls out his letter, and reads it to him. And answers every one of his questions. And answers the questions in such a way that it was very, very obvious that the Rebbe understood the sciences very well. So he was very, very impressed. He was impressed with the fact that the Rebbe had not answered him when he wrote the letter. And he was impressed with the fact that the Rebbe had this much knowledge. So he says to the Rebbe, I need to ask you a question, Ebenu. When I wrote you this letter, I was angry. I was upset. And you ignored my letter. Now, this letter doesn't bother me anymore. I have no issues with science and religion. Now you answer me? When the letter was concerned to me, you ignored me. Now that it's a big deal, now that it doesn't matter to me, answer me. So the Rebbe said to him, there's different versions, this is what I heard, apparently the most reliable version, the Rebbe said to him, quote, I would much rather lose an argument and win a Jew then win an argument and lose a Jew. But if the Rebbe answers him, they're going to start a whole science vikuach. The Rebbe doesn't care about science. The Rebbe cares about neshamis. The Rebbe ignores him. Okay, you have questions. It's okay. Just continue growing. And when the questions didn't bother him, the Rebbe finally answered. This is my second story. My third story. There was a Jew by the name of Pinchas Hirschsprung. Pinchas Hirschsprung was a computer. He knew Teir Shabalpeh by heart, like you could see a picture. He knew the Shas, the Rishalmi, with Rishonim and Rambam. The man knew it was encyclopedic. He knew the whole Teir by heart. He became close to the Rebbe. And he had a very special relationship with the Rebbe. And he was, he was a big god. He was a very big Tamat Chacham. And he was incredibly in the spot from the Rebbe's Goinus, from the Rebbe's genius in Torah. He once had a Yechidus, one time, the Yechidus of the Rebbe. And he said to the Rebbe, I want to ask the Rebbe something, but before I ask, I want to apologize for even asking it. He says, I know how busy the Rebbe is. 
but I would like the Rebbe to give me this one time. One time I want to talk to the Rebbe in learning, and believe that I will never do this again. The Rebbe should one time entertain him. And the Rebbe nodded. And they started a conversation, two computers talking to each other, two geniuses, for a very, very long time. I once heard that the conversation was about the Vigilata Mechavdala and Kofiyach, and they went through the Tanakh, and the Mishnah, and the Gemara, and the Goinim, and the Rishonim, all by art. And finally, after hours of conversation, they said, okay, now let's talk Teisvas Yamtif. Which is, an, and then he says to Rebbe, I can't keep up anymore. <laughs> I lose. He was ois man for the Rebbe's goodness. He became very great derechet for the Rebbe. Really, deep derechet for the Rebbe. He traveled to Romania, I think 1966. Romania girls, it's hard for you guys to understand this because this is now history, was worse than Russia as a communist state. But Romania had an official rob that was sanctioned by the government. I want you to know that when Ceausescu was killed, when the Romanian prime minister was killed, he had to run for his life because that rabbi was considered a, 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 a puppet of his. He had to leave Romania and move to He visited Romania and he met Jews and from city to city. A group of rabbis, was the, of course the government watched them with a hundred eyes and they let them visit Romania so that they could tell the world that in Romania there's no religious persecution. He came to a town and he met a yid, met a streimel, met peis, a bald, a very Hasidic yid. His wife was wearing a shaitel and he had from children. From children, Hamish children being raised in the shtetl many all by themselves. He was unbelievably impressed. This man was the shaykhet, he was the moyel, he was the rav, he was Masad the kiddush, he was Masad gitten, everything was him. And Rabbi Hirschman comes and the yid is a galept. And before Rabbi Hirschman leaves, I need to ask you a favor. He says, I have lived here in Romania, this was 20 years after the Holocaust. All of these years. And if not for me, did we know Yiddishkeit in Romania, in this city. But I have children. And I have a right to think about the future of my children's chinuch. So it's time for me to leave Romania. But I cannot get out of Romania. It's not, it's past, not possible. There's one man in the world who could help me. And that's the Lubavitcher Rebbe. When you travel to the West, make an appointment, go into the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and the Rebbe knew about this Romanian person, tell the Rebbe what I said, and ask the Rebbe on my behalf that he should help me leave Romania. Rabbi Hirschsprung left Russia, and he made an appointment, and he came to see the Rebbe, and the Rebbe wanted to know every detail of his trip, every city he visited, every street he walked down, every detail. The Rebbe was so concerned that every detail mattered to him. And finally, Rabbi Hirschsprung says, Rebbe knew, I met a Yid whose name is Pliny Ben Pliny, and apparently the Rebbe knows about him. He's a Hasidish in Tabor with a from wife and from children. And he's been the Ruach HaChayim in his city for all these years, since the war until now, it was many, many years. And he asked me that I should ask the Rebbe that the Rebbe should allow him to leave Romania. Should help leave Romania. The Rebbe became very, very serious. And then the Rebbe became very, very gvuridic, very strong. The leader, the Melech, as opposed to the Av. And the Rebbe told him the following. 
אז אל בית הבגד, ובית זין דשייך. אז אל בית הבגד, ובית זין דמויר. אז אל בית הבגד. He never went through all of his occupations. If he leaves, who's going to be the shaykhah? Who's going to be the mayor? Who's going to make a wedding? Who's going to make a yomtif? Who's going to make a pesach? And then the rabbi continues. Der schwer flecked chicken yidn in a zacha plezah. The Friedrich rabbi used to send people into such places. And the rabbi implied, I don't send people to such places. Aber wie kann ich helfen immer wegen? How can I help him leave? The Rebbe told him straight, I'm not helping him. He has to stay there. He has a wife, he has children. If he leaves, what's going to be with Yidin? Rabbi Hirschsprung said, I had known the Rebbe for a long time, but that's when I met him. I saw Vosmeit Amanhik. What it means, a leader of Yidin? You come to him with a request, and he judges your personal request against the needs of the cloud. And if the cloud needs Mesiris Nefesh, then the Prat needs to have the Mesiris Nefesh. Now I want to tell you a fourth story. It's a short one. There was a Yid by the name, I think this is Yossel Machkin. He may have grandchildren in this room also. Rabbi Yosef Machkin, Lord Empire Boulevard. Yosef Machkin came out of Russia in his 50s. He was over 50 when he came out of Russia. He got, his family left Russia, his father, his mother, his younger brothers left Russia. He was in jail. He was in jail not because he was smuggling, because he was in Mesiris Nefesh for Yiddishkeit. And his brother stayed, Shmuel, his brother stayed with him in Russia. They came out of Russia in the late 60s. They were both in their 50s. And they were not thinking to get married. The Rebbe told them to get married and promised them both children. And they both have children and grandchildren. And some are great-grandchildren. A little while after Yosef Mashiach got married, there's a halacha, a person gets married, 12 months, right? Shana de Shana, the high school girl knows this language already, yeah? Kedz Kadash. He was married three months. And the six-day war started, the six-day war, six-day war started on a Tuesday morning, I think on a Tuesday. He was in New York. He's newly married, the new wife. So he writes a letter to the Rebbe. He says, I know I'm newly married. But if the Rebbe gives me permission, I'm getting on the next plane, I'm flying to Etzisrael to kill Arabs. And he used the expression in his letter, with my, my sword and my bow. He was that kind of person. His Avas Yisrael was unbelievable, but he was a very tough man. So he writes the Rebbe a letter, the Rebbe gives him permission for the next plane to go to Etzisrael, going into a fire, living in New York. Pick himself up, get on a plane to go join a war in Yisrael to fight for the defense of Kuala Yisrael. The Rebbe didn't answer him. Shabbos, the war was almost over. The war lasted six days. The war was almost over already. Friday night, the Rebbe walked into Shul and the Rebbe sees him and the Rebbe gives him one of those smiles that lights up a room, a million dollar smile. And he said that from that point, for the rest of his life, his relationship with the Rebbe was different. A Jew is prepared to risk his life to help another Jew is by the Rebbe in a different class. It's in a different category. I want to tell you another story. A fifth story. This story may be familiar to many of you and I'm sure he has grandchildren in this room. 
I myself, I heard the story, this is a story that Mendel for the fast, but I heard him tell the story myself. It's a very famous story with Remendel. As you know, Remendel Futafas was one of those Hasidim who was involved in helping Anash leave Russia, Hasidim leave Russia after World War II. I mean, we all are here, we are alive because of that effort. Otherwise, we'd be stuck in Russia. Remendel was part of the group of five who helped Yidin leave Russia then. Most of the people who were involved in helping hundreds of families of Anash leave Russia were arrested and thrown in jail. And most of those actually died in prison. You heard the story named Muma Soro. She was the head of that committee. She paid with her life, as you know, to save Yidin. And there were many others. There was a chassid by the name of Yenah Paltavid who passed away in Russia. The Mendel Futafas got arrested for trying to help Yidin leave Russia. He was put in jail. And the way he told the story that I recall, he said he was sitting on death row. And his words, for he said, I was sitting in a cell where I know from there they take you out of the cell, they bring you into an alley, and they shoot you. He says, I'm sitting in this prison cell. I'm expecting to die two days, three days, four days. I'm thinking to myself, I have a wife. I have children. They left Russia. They left Russia. Where are they? Who's taking care of them? Who is worrying about them? Who's thinking about them? Who knows they exist? So that Mendel says to himself, I have to write a letter to the Rebbe. I'll write my brief. To the Rebbe. But how do you write a letter to the Rebbe if he's sitting on death row in a prison in Russia? He has no paper. He has no pen. He has no ink. He has no stamp. And he certainly doesn't have a postman. No one's sending his letter to the Rebbe from a Russian prison. So he decides that he's going to do it in his imagination, in his fantasy, in his divyan. And in his imagination, he prepared himself. He went to the mikveh, all in his imagination. He made a chonest that a chosid makes one to the Rebbe Yechidis. And he visualized, he pictured the Friyadik Rebbe as he remembered him from 20 years before, from 1927. And he went into the Friyadik Rebbe's chedid in his imagination. And he says to the Rebbe, I'm on my way to a better world. Within a few days, they're going to kill me. But I have a wife. And I have children. I don't know where they are. And I don't know who's thinking about them. I'm asking the Rebbe Abrocha that he should look after my family. The Mendel Futafas was not shot. He was sent to a labor camp. He spent 10 years in a slave labor camp in Siberia. After he came out of that labor camp, he spent another six or seven years living all over Russia until with Nisim G'daylim, that Mendel came. He was freed from Russia at the end of 1963. Tavshin The end of 1960, he left leave Russia. He comes out of his Russia and he finds that his wife and children are living in England. His first visit to the Rebbe was Yitzchis of Tavshin 1963. Anyway, so the story is that one day he was looking through his wife's correspondence and he found a stack of mail, of letters that were letters from the Rabbeim, from the Friedrich Rebbe and the Rebbe to his wife. And he goes through this collection of letters and uh, he finds a letter that's written to him. It's addressed to him. And he opens the letter and the date is around Lagboimer time. I don't know what year it was. It probably was around Tavshin Zayin. And he reads the letter. And uh, the letter turns out to have been a response to the pan they had sent the Rebbe B'machshava. 
And he writes to him, Hapan Niskabu. I got your letter. I got your opinion. She says to the Mendel, Tell your wife and children that they should move to England. Which of course they did. They were living in England. So the Mendel takes this letter and it goes over to his Rebetzin, who by the way is actually still alive. And he says to his wife, what's this letter? She says, I don't know. One day out of the blue, a letter arrived addressed to you. And it says, I received your letter. Tell your wife and children to move to England. So move to England. So the Mendel says, let me tell you the rest of the story. Three days before, the Mendel had mentally connected himself with the Rebbe. The Rebbe heard his Yechides and physically wrote a letter to his wife and took care of her. Had her move to England. One final story. There was a Jew who lived in Paris, who probably has grandchildren in this room also, whose name was Leibish Heber. Leibish Heber. And he was a successful businessman. He had a very big business. And he loved the Rebbe. The Rebbe was then the Friedrich Rebbe's son-in-law. But any time the Rebbe needed anything, he would close his business and take the Rebbe with his car, wherever the Rebbe needed to go. He just, he loved the Rebbe. He was a chassan, the Friedrich Rebbe. He pushed loved the Rebbe. When World War II started, when the Germans invaded Poland, and there was talk of them invading France, so he comes to the Rebbe, Leibish Rebbe comes to our Rebbe, who was living in Paris at the time, and says, what do you say? I have a relative in America who sent me visas. Visas means rights of path entry into the United States. I can get tickets on a ship, I can travel to the United States. But if I leave now, I take a multi-million dollar business and I sell it for pennies. I lose my everything. What should I do? Should I stay in France? Or should I leave France and go to the United States of America? So the Rebbe looks at him and says to him, you have a question? Should I So Mr. Heber tells the Rebbe, Poland was under siege. The Nazis were dropping bombs on Poland. There's no mail, there's no correspondence, there's no communication between France and Poland under those conditions. How am I supposed to write a letter to the So the Rebbe tells him as follows. You cannot understand what it means, a Rebbe. Do schreibe. You write a letter. The Friedrich Rebbe will find a way to answer. And he says to Leibish, tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock we'll go together to the office of the telegraph and we'll write a telegram. He looks at the Rebbe funny, he knew it was a waste of time. <coughs> anyway, 9 o'clock in the morning, the Rebbe telegraph office went over to the counter. And uh, you, Girls, you can't relate to this either. In the age of emails and fax machines, when people used to write telegrams, you had to be paid by the word. So you would take three words and join them together to create 30 words that was really a whole letter. These long rut words that were like 20 letters. And they wrote up this telegram to ask the Friedrich Rebbe whether he should stay in Poland, France and move to America. They went over to the counter and they said to the clerk that we want to send a telegram. Where to? To Poland. And he looks at them and says, Poland? Are you guys out of your mind? What's going on in Poland? There's no... Anyway, the telegram was never sent. The next morning, Leibich Heber woke up with absolute clarity. Move. Leave France. So he lost his business. He got on the next available ship, took his family to America, and they survived. All of them. They live in Grand Heights, many of them. Now, girls, I told you six stories. 
The first two stories, if, this is my version, maybe people disagree. The first two stories are stories of Kiruv, of being Makarev, the Rebbe's Makarev Ayidni. The first story was a story with Reuven Dunin, the tractor story. The second story was the story of Velvel Green, which was the story with the Minche, and the, the letter about science and religion, the Rebbe did not answer. Those are the first two stories. The middle two stories are stories of Mercedes Nefesh. A Jew who... The Rebbe says, I'm going to let a Yid leave Russia? In other words, the Rebbe expected Mercedes Nefesh. And the third two stories are stories of his kashas. Now, I have three questions. Of these three groups of stories, which are the most important to the Eibishter? Which are the most important to the Rebbe? And which are the most important to you? Okay, but we're going to think this through here. Okay, I told you six stories. Two stories about, about Kiruv, two stories about Mesiris Nefesh, and two stories about his Kashtas. So I'm going I'm to, by show of hands, let's start with the Abish there. Okay. If you think that the most important thing to the Abishtir is Kiruv, raise your hand. Okay. If you think that the most important thing to the Abishtir is Mesiris Nefesh, raise your hand. If you think that the most important stories to the Abishtir are the stories of his Kashrus, raise your hand. If you didn't think, raise your hand. Okay, now girls, I'm going to ask you the question again. Now I'm going to ask you the question a second time. But now I'm asking you what you think is the most important to the Rebbe. If you think that the most important stories are the stories about Kiruv to the Rebbe, raise your hand. About Kiruv. Okay, put your hands down. If you think that the most important stories are the stories of Mesiras Nefesh, raise your hand. Okay, put your hands down. And if you think that the most important stories are the stories about his kashus, raise your hand. Okay. Now I'm going to do it a third time, but I'd like quiet you. I'm asking this a third time, but this is your opinion now. If you think that the most important stories are the stories of Kirov, raise your hand. Okay, if you think that the most important stories are the stories of Mesiris Nefesh, raise your hand. If you think that the most important stories are the stories of Hiskashrus, raise your hand. That's the only real vote. Okay, girls, I must be honest with you. I decided to do this for my talk. Mostly because I wanted to tell stories, that's the honest truth. <laughs> and I really didn't know what the correct answer to this question is. But I'm going to tell you a thought anyway. And I, I may change my mind tomorrow. I may not even be sure of it today. But it's just a perspective on this question. That to the Eivishter, the most important thing is Kiruv. To the Rebbe, the most important thing is Mesides Nefesh. And to a chassid, the most important thing 
is a Scotchman. <laughs> so now wait, I haven't got to the point yet. So now, if a chassid is makushi to his rebbe, if a chassid is makushi to his rebbe, which means he puts first what his rebbe wants and second what she wants, so then also to the chassid, the most important stories are the stories of Mesiris Nefesh. And with you for yourself, the most important thing is Eskashus. But what is Eskashus? The Rebbe wants Mesiris Nefesh. Now once upon a time, Mesiris Nefesh meant living in Russia. Once upon a time, Mesiris Nefesh meant literally risking your life to help another Jew. Today, Mesiris Nefesh means breaking your will. Not conforming to what everybody else is not busy with. Not prioritizing what the social pressures, what the community prioritizes. And to want what the Rebbe wants. And to make our lives what the Rebbe wants our lives to be. And that's the greatest discussion. The greatest discussion is the discussion of Mesiris Nefesh. And Mesiris Nefesh is not easy. But if the Abish helps that you live instead of Chasosham Hepechachayim and Mesiris Nefesh, it's a hard life. But it's the best life. Now I'm going to I'll tell you one more story and I'm going to finish. There was a Yid who lived in Bnei Brak. Bnei Brak is a city in Eretz Yisrael. Let's just say it's not particularly friendly to Lubavitch and to the Rebbe. His father was a misnagid, an Oilem Shirid, not a Chosid. But his father told him when he was growing up that if anybody ever makes fun of Lubavitch, he's not allowed to join. If anybody speaks against the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he's not allowed to speak against the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He says, why? He tells him, because you were born from a bracha, from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he tells him the following story. In 1947, the Rebbe was in Paris for three months. The reason the Rebbe was in Paris then was, was he came to get his mother, the Rebbe Sanchana, he spent the Pesach there. He was there Pesach and Shavuot. During this visit to France, the Rebbe met Hasidim, who just come out of Russia, who were living in Paris. And the Rebbe met all kinds of Jews. Amongst the Jews the Rebbe met was this man's father. He was a survivor of the Holocaust. And a Ben Tater was a big Talmud Chacham. And whenever he and the Rebbe would meet, they would talk and learning. The Rebbe liked to talk and learning. He was a Talmud Chacham. They would talk and learning and they developed a very, very warm friendship. This man had had was married many years and no children. So some Lubavitcher says to him, you know, you have this relationship with the son-in-law of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Ask him for a bracha for children. He says to Hezachayin, I'm a litvak, litvak, don't ask for brachas. We dive into the He says, what do you have to lose here? You speak to him all the time, better my bracha. And he hesitated, and he hesitated, and he hesitated. And one time was before Pesach, and the Rebbe was talking to him and learning about the Pesach Seydin. And of course, about the idea that the center of the Pesach Seder is the kinderlach, the children. And he tells the Rebbe, but I don't have any children. So the Rebbe looks at him and he shakes his head 
And with a big smile on his face, he gives him a brach. He tells him, "Dos is far This is for the mitzvah of telling your children the story of Yitzchak Mitzrayim. By the next Pesach, he had a son. That was this young man. By the next Pesach, he already had a son. He moved out of Tisrael. He was involved in yeshivas and in learning. His son was a big bentayda in the Litvish world, the Elmish world. And he said to his son, Hezachayin, I'm asking you to be a chosset. But don't speak on the Lubavitcher Rebbe because you wouldn't exist if not for the Lubavitcher Rebbe. In 1989, 40 years later, he traveled to America for the first time for a wedding of a relative in Lakewood. When he comes here, he says to his relatives, I need to go to Brooklyn. So they tell him, what did you lose in Brooklyn? He says, I gotta tell you the truth, I need to go see the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And nobody goes from Lakewood to the Lubavitcher Anyway, he didn't explain, but he found his way to Crown Heights on a Sunday, and he took with him a son, who was already already a younger man. And he gets online, and he decides he's not saying anything to the Rebbe, he just wants to see him. The Rebbe that gave his father the bracha, that brought him into this world, he wants to say, look at him. He waited in line for a long time, and he comes up to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe is giving dollars, and every person who got a dollar from the Rebbe, the Rebbe said to him, Bracha v'atzlocha. And Bracha v'atzlocha was not a cliche. It wasn't a loza gizun. It was a Bracha for atzlocha. The Rebbe gave Bracha v'atzlocha, and he walks away. And the Rebbe gives his son a dollar, Bracha v'atzlocha, and then he turns around, and he calls the father back, and he gives him a second dollar. And he says to him, Dos is farvi'igadha talavimcha. The same words with which the Rebbe had blessed his father 42 years earlier, the Rebbe gives him thus, Girls, I want to be candid with you. For me to fabreng with you, Rav Nissen, is not fair. You were not where I was, and I am not where you are. But I'm giving you each a bracha. But the same way in my heart there's an unbelievable love for the Rebbe and an appreciation for the Rebbe and the value of the Rebbe because of how much the Rebbe gives. You should have the same feelings of love for the Rebbe. You should have a hoyu, a necha, reyes, esmerecha. You should see the Rebbe before your eyes. Like it says in Chumash Rashi. Yesef HaTzadik was a big tzadik, yeah? Yesef HaTzadik was a bigger tzadik than me and you. And it says in Rashi, Yosef HaTzadik was going to do an Aveda that would have destroyed his Elam Haba forever. And And he saw the countenance of his holy father, Yankov Avinu. And he didn't do the Aveda. I give you a bracha that you should see the Rebbe in front of your eyes. But most important of all, more than the love, and more than the Vahayu in Acharei Esmeracha is the Lehamed Reshi Kerela Hamaisa. Figure out what the Rebbe wants from you and do it. And do it by Tzlocha and the Achshan of the Tanam Tevis and do it by Simcha and Tov Levov. From Achakosh of the Sameach, from Azarez Gifungolos, Nachfadem Pesach. Okay, thank you.